Well, we will begin our 18th session. Can you believe it? We're getting close to the end here. This actually will probably be the hardest session to stay awake. (laughs) So I may have to learn how to dance or something or do something to keep you awake. And if I happen to fall asleep, just we'll have uh, maybe Brad or Lindsay come up and finish for me. (laughs) Lindsay. (laughs) Now, we'll finish chapter 13, but uh, we'll spend most of our time in session 18 dealing with chapter 14. This is another positive chapter. Not entirely, but uh, things that uh, there's some positive notes in it, much like chapter 7, a little bit like uh, what we had in chapter 11, where we had two witnesses. The uh, overall thrust of this chapter I've entitled Ultimate Victory. In other words, God is giving us assurance in the midst of all of these devastating judgments in the midst of all of these despicable personages, dragons, and beasts of two varieties, God is going to ultimately bring victory. So that's what we will focus in a moment when we get to chapter 14. We were just about done with chapter 13, so let's just conclude it. Looking at the second beast... And we were looking at his person and his program. His program involves a political aspect, a political corroboration with the first beast. It also involves religious counterfeiting, more miracles. The second beast has ability to perform miracles as well as the first beast. And we looked at all these characteristics, religious aspects. And he will also have an economic control. And that's the last part that we have in the passage. So in uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 16, not only does he persecute those who do not worship, but in verse 16, he causes, there's that word poeo that uh, gave you a little bit of a uh, explanation. The word causes is a strong translation of poeo, and it can be used certainly, and in this context, uh, legitimately, he causes all, the small and the great. In other words, it doesn't matter what social strata people are from. Uh, The rich and the poor, we have kind of the two opposing strata there. And the free and the slave. So whether it be those that have power, those that don't have power, those that have money or those that don't have money, those that uh, are free or those that are slaves. So basically all encompassing is the idea here. This will be a totalitarian world system when it's all completed and when it reaches its height. So all society, he causes them to be given... There's didomai, a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. 
Now, only up until recently was there technology with the capability of doing this, to be able to identify people and to track them. That seems that what we, we have in view here is a tracking system. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of the beast. So people have an identifying mark or an identifying characteristic uh, of some sort. Maybe a barcode, as some people suggest, or... Uh, the capability today to track are computer chips, whether it be an overt chip on a forehead or in a hand or even under the skin. It seems to be a visible mark of some sort, and it seems to be uh, uh, identifying an association with the beast or maybe a combination of uh, all of the things that we're talking about here. But basically, in order to be able to uh, perform what it says here to be able to cause all and small and great. You've got to be able to track. You've got to be able to identify people. And up until the last few years, uh, the world has not even had that capability, but we have that capability today. I'm not saying that we're very close, but it's an indicator that we could very easily be very close to the events that we're talking about in terms of time. So we have... A tracking system, a means by which uh, people can be identified. And uh, if people don't have the mark, not only are they marked out for persecution, but now they are excluded from the economic opportunities that those that have the mark uh, have available to them. So the economy is going to be a controlled economy and people are going to be controlled. There's, no, there's, there's basically not going to be any freedom in this totalitarian system. It's going to have all of the evil characteristics, as we saw uh, in the earlier verses, of those totalitarian governments that Daniel saw in the Old Testament. Uh, it's going to be worse than Babylon. It's going to be worse than uh, Medo-Persia. It's going to be worse than Greece. It's going to be worse than the Roman Empire at its worst. All gathered together under one system, one totalitarian system that has political aspects, that has religious aspects, that has economic. So that's basically all of culture. All of the society is going to be under a totalitarian control. And then we have that difficult verse there. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And again, commentators have taken that number and tried to use it to identify someone. Uh, I think all of it is futile because this individual will not be identifiable uh, because Second Thessalonians says that he will be revealed at a certain point in time. And I think that revelation will be after, in fact, the identification will be made uh, when that person signs that uh, covenant with the nation of Israel during that seven year period. So uh, the number, the, the preterists see and tie it to Nero Historically, the historicists have tied it to different people uh, in, in, in history. 
during the Reformation, the the uh, uh, the reformers tied it to the pope that was in view at that time, or later popes, and using different means to identify the number with these personages. I think it's 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 somewhat futile, and we're exhorted from the very beginning. Here is wisdom. Let him who who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Uh, I think that's reserved for the period of time where the people that are in view, in other words, the people that are living during the seven-year period, they will be able to identify him. Uh, So that's the second beast. He will control the economy as well as the other aspects, or uh, at least uh, in conjunction with the first beast. Those that receive the mark of the beast are going to be only unbelievers? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're unbelievers. Uh, in that period of time, it's going to be very, very clear-cut. In other words, it's going to be black and white. Uh, today, it's hard to discern who is truly born again. Uh, if you're born again, uh, you're going to suffer. And to, uh, you're going to pay a price. So people are not going to claim to be believers unless they genuinely are. And people will be separated. Uh, you're basically forfeiting, for example, you're forfeiting your right to participate in the economy uh, if you are a believer and don't take the mark. So I think it's going to be clearly identifiable. By the way, um, a lot of people misinterpret that parable in the Olivet Discourse. Remember, the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' outline of these same events. It's briefer. But one of the parables, these are parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 25. There are three parables. The third parable sometimes is misinterpreted. I think the context of that third parable, the sheep and the goats, um, that parable pertains to this period of time, the period of the tribulation. And when Jesus says, when you have done to those, how does he phrase it? Um, I can't remember how he phrases it, but basically his people, Jesus' people, it's the same as if you've done it to me. And he's talking about material things. Because the tribulation is going to be such, at least the second half, that believers are not going to be able to participate uh, Christians are going to have to depend on somewhat of an underground economy where they're going to have to be generous with one another and share things. So it's going to be a major sacrifice. So the context of that parable, I think you can draw applications for any time, but the particular context deals with people living during this period of time. Uh, when you visit those that are in prison, a lot of people are going to be in prison because they did not take the mark of the beast. That would be part of persecution. A lot of people are going to go naked because they just don't have the resources to, to buy things. A lot of people are going to be hungry because they just can't participate in the economy. So Christians that uh, look out after each other, whether they be Jewish or non-Jewish, Jesus gives special praise in that, that parable. So when you think of that parable in Matthew chapter 25, put it in the setting of this time frame. Now, certainly you can draw applications at any point from any passage, but in terms of the context, that's where you would put that parable. 
It uh, it's not clear as to when it takes place, but um, uh, I'm not sure. I can't answer your question. The program of the second beast is to promote the first beast. Uh, he is an instigator of false religion, and he controls the economy. Those are his main three functions: promoting the first beast, promoting false religion, and controlling the economy. Uh, a lot of strange views. I already went over some of that. The historicist view, that's the Reformation. But I think there's a particular man that can be identified, a member of the unholy trinity, that has a particular number or a way of identifying him during the tribulation. So that's the heavenly explanation, or at least the first part that deals with the main characters. Israel... Satan, Jesus Christ, angelic creatures, Antichrist, and a false prophet. Those are the major characters of the Great Tribulation. And each of them is portrayed to us using imagery. The woman is Israel. The dragon is Satan. The man-child is Jesus Christ. Um, the war and wrath relate to angelic beings. First beast, Antichrist, second beast, false prophet. And in the book of Revelation, he's also called the uh, false prophet, the second beast. So that's chapter 13. No, I think it's the mark of the first beast. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's a contrast that we can draw between chapter 13 and at least chapter 14, the first five verses. We've seen a savage beast. We've seen a mark of a beast. We've seen a number of the beast. We've seen worshippers of the beast. We've seen a new world order, a totalitarian world order. We've seen slavery to that beast. And we've also had at least uh, hints of idolatry or at least false worship. In chapter 14, the first five verses, notice it says at the very beginning there, and I looked, and behold, what? A lamb. There's another reference to the lamb. Uh, chapter 14 is now kind of another picture, another heavenly explanation. Uh, this explanation is viewed more from God's perspective in terms of what He's going to accomplish. Chapter 13 is more from the satanic perspective and what he will effect and what God permits he, he to effect. So chapter 14 is in contrast, uh, particularly the first part, uh, as to what God is going to accomplish and things that God is going to do during this period of time. Uh, again, it's introduced with a new vision, and I looked. That's Kai Adon again, and I looked. Behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him one 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So we have a Lamb, and those that have the mark, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads, See the contrast? This is to, to bring a vivid contrast of black and white. 
that that is of God, that that is of Satan. We have the mark of the beast in chapter 13. We have the mark of the lamb. We have the number 666 of the beast, and we have another number. We have 144,000. We were already introduced to them in chapter 7. We know who they are. They're all Jewish. And in fact, it emphasizes again here that they are celibate. Verse 4, we'll get to that in a moment. We also find that uh, verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters. Again, it's noisy. Thunderous waters. And like the sound of loud thunder. Again, we have thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists harping on their harps. That's a literal translation. (laughs) It's interesting because you have three forms of the same word. You have the noun form, you have the verb form, you have, I think, an adjectival form. And translating it uh, literally, you would translate it, uh, you have the sound of harpists. There's the noun form. Uh, Harping, uh, that's the verb form. Actually, a second noun on their harps. In in Greek, it's very uh, it's um, kind of emphasizing the worship aspect. Verse three, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. Uh, goes back to chapter four, which was the the emphasis. Of chapter four was the throne. If you remember back when we were studying chapter four, these are singing a new song. Uh, this new song, we don't have the content of it. It doesn't expose for us what it is, or reveal, rather. Uh, but really, it's a song related and unique to the 144,000. It's probably a blessed thing that God gives them. They're before the throne, but it's another worship scene. Most of the, like I said, most of the uh, heavenly scenes are worshipful. This is a voice from heaven. They sang a new song. Now, those that are singing sang the new song. Uh, The 144,000 will learn this song. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. We saw them. They're angelic beings and the elders. Uh, Those are representative of the church. At least that's the way we interpreted them when we were in chapter 4. And no one could learn the song except, they're going to learn it here in verse 3, the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So we have two groups here. We have the martyrs that are here, or these voices, could be angelic beings as well, harping on their harps. And and we also have the 144,000. And what this is basically telling us is that we have ultimate victory of the 144,000. They're going to survive. Now, there's debate amongst conservative scholars as to whether they survive physically. I'm inclined to see them surviving physically the Great Tribulation, being protected. Uh, Others hold that uh, some of them are martyred or all of them are martyred. And obviously, they'll survive because they'll be raised again. But it, it makes more sense to see them surviving the whole time. At any rate, they will learn this song, uh, this new song, and it identifies them as those that have been purchased from the earth. In other words, Christ has died for them, just like he's died for other believers. 
And then we have their identification here. These are the ones who have not been defiled of woman. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I, I don't think it's denigrating relations with women in a proper context. Uh, but these takes into account that they're celibate. In other words, these are individuals that never marry. And because they have never married, they have never entered into sexual relationships outside of marriage. And I think that's what's in view here. Uh, this is not a passage that uh, is a comment on sex in general or sexual relations. Uh, God has ordained us to ha- have those relationships, in the, but it's in the proper context. In fact, it's a beautiful thing. So, uh, God's the one that invented it. Uh, it's not a dirty thing. We have made it dirty by engaging in it out of the context that God has designed it. So when it says uh, they haven't defiled themselves with women, it's not denigrating sex or marriage. Uh, It's emphasizing that they have not been unfaithful through their commitment of celibacy. Okay, these are the ones who have not been defiled of women, for they have kept themselves chaste. In that context of singleness. These are the ones who follow the Lamb. So we have a contrast of who they follow. Well, they've got a new song in contrast to this new order. Uh, They're redeemed, purchased from the earth, verse 3. And they're undefiled. And not only undefiled, but they follow. They're obedient to the Lamb wherever He goes. Uh, Again, emphasizing the redemption. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Uh, And to reemphasize their purity in terms of spiritual matters, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, let's backtrack and look at this. Again, we'll emphasize some some of the things that we read uh, over quickly. Uh, Another way that you can apply this passage, here's a passage, uh, the the application I drew here is we have certainly born-again individuals, the 144,000, and I think what we have is, is an illustration of spiritual maturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? I think there's some characteristics that are drawn from this passage that you can, again, support elsewhere. Uh, One of the things that it tells us, it doesn't take a long time to reach a level of spiritual maturity. These are saved at the very beginning of the tribulation. And in a rather short period of time, they're already functioning. They're already ministering. And they will have a worldwide ministry. They'll be spread all over. So we see there's no mention of failure on their part. That doesn't mean that they didn't sin. That doesn't mean they were perfect. But it seems to emphasize that they reached spiritual maturity rather rapidly. So what are some of the characteristics that we can draw from the passage we already read that uh, enables us to see something of what uh, spiritual maturity looks like. 
Well, number one emphasizes that a spiritually mature person, I believe, has a clear testimony. He is an individual that knows the gospel, and when opportunity presents itself, he is able to clearly articulate the gospel. Uh, in verse 1, we have 144,000 people noted here having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Uh, they fulfilled their ministry. Now, this is at their end of their ministry, so it kind of looks back at uh, uh, why they were here and some of the passages that we spoke of in terms of their mission. So they have a clear testimony. They stand alone. They stand alone. They have to. Uh, they, uh, I take it that the 144,000 were not kind of like an army that marched together. They were more... 144,000 that God raised up from Jewish people all over the world in order to fulfill their ministry. So many of them were probably isolated. Some of them were probably in, you know, in a community all by themselves. Uh, whether nations in Africa or wherever or South America or wherever. A lot of them, I think, had to stand alone. Uh, we see them standing here with uh, with uh, the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Verse three: A person that has spiritual maturity has spiritual insight. They sing a new song. They learn a new song. And what the content of that is, we don't know, but it. It's a hint of spiritual insight. This is very clear in verse 4, their moral purity. As I've already explained, God called them to singleness and they're not defiled outside of that calling in terms of relationships with women. And it's also noted that they have kept themselves chaste. So moral purity that is a mark of maturity, whether it be within marriage or outside of marriage, moral purity. Uh, it's possible within a marriage relationship to not have moral purity. But that's a mark or an indicator of spiritual maturity. So a spiritually mature person has a clear testimony, stands alone. Spiritual insight is part of who he is. He's able to do counseling. He's able to teach the word. He's able to encourage people. He's able to motivate on some level. And certainly he has moral purity. Verse 5. Uh, I probably ought to select a different word. It, it doesn't mean that we're absolutely, totally obedient. But we are co maybe consistently obedient would be a better choice of word there. Verse 4. Uh, I don't think they were necessarily perfect. It doesn't say anything negative about them, but it does indicate their obedience. Uh, they are the ones who have not been defiled by women. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb. That's obedience. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. In other words, they're in fellowship with Him. They are walking with Him. The whole Christian walk, it's a consistent a uh, Christian walk that uh, is at a higher level than a lot of Christians we know today. 
These have been purchased from the earth. And here's the little phrase, are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. This is one of the little uh, exegetical details that I think supports the idea that these are the ones that come at the very beginning of the period of the seven-year tribulation. These are the first fruits. The first fruit of the uh, two prophets, if they also come at the very beginning. These have a unique mission. This is also implied in verse 4. But these also, we saw earlier that their mission is unique. They're, they're a specially called group. Now, our mission is not necessarily the same as 144,000, but each one of us, I believe, has a unique ministry. Maybe similar to others, but because he's gifted us differently and uniquely, uh, we don't have to uh, be a clay. We don't have to be a, a great evangelist like someone that you might know. Uh, God may give you the gift of evangelism and it may manifest itself in a different way. You will have a unique outworking of that gift. And you'll have a unique combination sometimes. I think God sometimes gives combinations of gifts. And there will be a uniqueness about your ministry. And certainly my ministry is pretty unique as well. I don't fall into a lot of the categories. Uh, but I enjoy the uniqueness of it and take advantage of what God has given uh, or at least I make an attempt. But each one of us, I think, are given a unique ministry. So these are just ways of applying the passage. Uh, and this is kind of an example of how you might draw from other passages applications. Uh, they're men of high integrity. Verse 5, uh, no lie was found in their mouth. Uh, they are blameless. In fact, the imagery there are uh, like uh, an unblemished lamb. The last imagery there is the word that is used in a sacrificial sense. Jewish sacrifices. Zion. Uh, in the Old Testament, Zion is the place where God ultimately dwells. In the Bible, Zion uh, probably encompassed most of the Temple Mount and part of this portion here. This is the city of David. You can visit that today and see the area where uh, David's kingdom was focused. Uh, there's another area that is identified as Mount Zion. If you do go, it's off, off the screen here uh, in this direction. And I don't think that's an accurate archaeological description of Zion. I think Zion is more the Temple Mount area and the area surrounding that. But there's a lot of Old Testament passages that, uh, uh, that speak of Mount, Mount Zion and a lot of prophetic statements that refer to uh, Zion. Uh, let see if I can find my notes that have some of those Old Testament passages. Well, for the sake of time, we can come back to that. Another shot, same location. Uh, just to give you an image of when the Jews thought of Mount Zion, I think they thought of this area right in here. This is the Mount of Olives, by the way. This is looking from the south to the north, Mount of Olives here. The east gate would be 
along the wall that you can't see. The Garden of Gethsemane is in this area in here. And obviously that's the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley. So that's the perspective. Uh, it appears that that is where the 144,000 are gathered in this period of time. Okay. I think uh, I take it, like I said, there's debate amongst scholars as to whether they're dead or alive. I take it that they're alive, that they survived the tribulation. But it's a picture of victory. In other words, they have survived this period of time. They're given this new song that they learn, and it may relate to their ministry, uh, and it probably relates to their victory. Jebel. Right. I think they. Uh, I think they enter. And when we talk about the kingdom, we're going to talk about two groups that enter the kingdom, or two, two forms that we can enter the kingdom. We have a part in the kingdom. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lay out all those that are part of the kingdom. The church has a part in the kingdom, but we will be there in what kind of bodies? Obviously. Resurrected, right? There's a whole, whole group, and there's a reason for it. When we get to the kingdom, we'll talk about the reasons for that. There's a whole group of believers that enter into the kingdom in mortal bodies. We'll talk about that. Uh, uh, Christians are not clear on that, even in conservative circles. Uh, I take it that the 144,000 are part of the nation of Israel that enter in mortal bodies. And there'll be others as well. Okay? Uh, by the way, I see Matthew 25, those first two parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the other parable of the talents, as a Parables relating to those that enter the kingdom at the second, right after the second coming. And those first two parables, I take it to be Jewish people. So there'll be Jewish people that enter into the kingdom in mortal bodies. Now, this is a theological conclusion putting some of the data together. But I think it makes sense because of all of the data. We'll get to that when we get to the kingdom. Does that answer your question there? Uh, I mentioned, I've been mentioning, we see, we see um, angels having a major part in the book of Revelation over and over and over. I've got a list of the major ministries of angels here. So let's take a little bit of time and take a look at that because I think it's important Revelation is one of the most important books in angelology. It gives us almost a complete angelology. Now, there's some things that other passages add that are not in the book of Revelation, but we have most of the elements of angelology, and particularly one aspect of that. What are angels all about in terms of how does God use them? So we can call this the ministry of angels. The word angelos 
This basically means messenger and is generally God's messengers throughout the Bible. And we've already seen uh, how God uses them in other contexts, but let's kind of give you a, a bigger kind of summary of, of what angels, angels do. The first category and some of the first occasions of what they do, we see in Revelation 4 and 5. They participate in worship. And in fact, they might even lead worship. There's some hints of that possibility. So they are creatures that minister directly to God by worshiping Him. Now in chapter 4, for example, we won't look up all of the passages, but let's look at some of them just to kind of support the idea. Look at chapter 4, 6 through 9. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. We interpret them as a order or a group of angels, angelic beings. By the way, this is a reference to angels where the word angelos does not appear. But I think they're angels. The first creature was like a lion. We have a description of that. And then skip to verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, day and night. And look, notice, day and night, they do not say, cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And then when the four living creatures, see, they lead there. When the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, now the twenty-four elders join in and worship. Uh, similarly, in chapter 5, we see uh, the angels worshiping. We've already seen other contexts where we see angels worshiping, uh, but here are two that are representative. So that's a major ministry that they have directly to God in giving Him worship, adoration, and praise. Here's a, a very important aspect of their ministry. They are revealers of God's Word. And in fact, there's lots of verses. Most of the verses in the book of Revelation, they're involved in the revelation of God's Word. Uh, notice the very first verse. Notice how the book begins. And you might even remember this because I made a big deal out of it. It's the revelation. This is the book. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. It begins with God to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by what? His angel. A particular angel. And the angel delivers it to his bondservant, John, and John bears witness, and he records. But notice it's through the agency of an angel. So the book at the very beginning, they're involved in the revelation of the whole book. 
And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, notice, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches. And remember, every one of the seven churches, how does it begin? Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. And you go to verse 8. To the angel of the church of Samaria. Uh, Smyrna, rather. These letters are mediated through angels. So they're involved in the revealing of God's word. Each of the six, seven churches, angels are addressed at the very beginning. Uh, these are just examples. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. They... It's an angel that reveals and identifies that Jesus is the only one that is worthy to break the seals on the scroll. There's lots of examples. Uh, chapter 7, verse 2. We have a command to four angels not to harm the earth. And they go and they make revelation in chapters two, uh, 7, 7, 2 through 3. Uh, I could give you some other ones, but look in chapter back to chapter 14. We'll get to this in a moment, but uh, just for the sake of this aspect in verse 8, and another angel, a second one followed, saying, it's the angel that makes this announcement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. It's the angel that delivers the message. And the reason I'm doing this at this point is we're going to see angelic activity throughout chapter 14, uh, almost more so than we have in any other chapter. So I'm using kind of this occasion to develop kind of this idea of what angels are all about in terms of their ministry. So they announce the fall of Babylon. We'll see them announcing judgment on the beast in verses 9 through 12. We see them uh, making commands in verse 14 or 15, rather, of chapter 14, uh, verse 18. Later on, an angel is going to give revelation concerning the harlot in chapter 17. And we'll see other occasions in chapter 18. 19. So there's several ones that we'll still look at in terms of angels Revealing God's Word. The third major ministry that angels have, they are witnesses of God's work. They are observers. Witnesses of God's work. Just a couple of verses. Chapter 2, verse 5. It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming. To you. Let's see. Is that the right verse? It didn't look right. Mm, that's not the right verse. No, that's the wrong verse. I, I'm not sure what I had in mind there. Uh, another clear verse is in 1410. Let's look at it. Three five. You might be right. Let's look at three five. Does that look better? Yeah, that's there. That's that's what I had in view. 
He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. They're observers of what God is doing with these overcomers. The angels are observers. We also know outside of the book of Revelation that angels are observing what God is doing. In fact, one of the main purposes of the whole church is identified in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul defines what the church is all about. And in Ephesians 3, uh, it is to display things that God is doing to, in fact, let's turn to that verse because it's pretty explicit. And most people don't uh, realize what God is doing through the church in relationship to angels. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul defines the church as a mystery composed of Jew and Gentile on an equal basis. And let's see, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, this mystery of what the church is, which for ages has been hidden, that's the definition of a mystery, hidden in God, who created all things, and here's the purpose of the church. A main purpose of the church is not necessarily evangelism. A main purpose of the church, from God's perspective, is not just the teaching of the Word. These are important aspects of that. But notice this one that we sometimes overlook in verse 10. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now, in the church age, be made known through the ecclesia, through the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What God is doing on earth amongst the church and in the church and the church in the world is under observation and angels are observing what is going on. They don't have an understanding of some perfections of God and they're seeing visible examples of that as God deals with us as a church. That's kind of interesting. Do you remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 11? Paul is dealing with kind of an issue in a local church at Corinth. And he's talking about wearing of veils. Remember that passage? And women should wear a veil, it says. And you need to... It's kind of a difficult passage to interpret. Uh, I like to approach it by saying, if the veil fits, wear it. So... <laughs> So you can take it, uh, there's different views on that in terms of the culture and all that stuff. But there's a little statement tucked in there that almost comes out of nowhere. Paul says, for the angels. What does he mean? Well, I think Ephesians tells us, and the book of Revelation illustrates for us, that angels are observing what God is doing, and particularly he's observing what God is doing amongst the church. Angels are also witnesses to other things that God is doing uh, particularly in the tribulation. Uh, 3 5 and back to uh, chapter 14, verse 10. 
14.10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his wrath, this wrath that's going to come, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Notice, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Uh, they're not doing anything. They're just there. They seem to be observers of what God is doing. Observers of judgment in this case. Observers of outpouring of wrath. So they're witnesses of God's work. A fourth thing in the book of Revelation that tells us that they're involved in judgment now, I've got two categories relating to judgment. Here, they're involved in it. It doesn't seem to be uh, uh, direct instruments, but let me give you both categories right off the bat here. They're not only involved in the judgments, but in some cases, they are the very instruments of judgment. Uh, let's look at both of those. In chapter 6 again, turn back there. In chapter 6, again, we uh, have the four living creatures. John sees the Lamb. He broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, come. Now, remember, in this context, it's Jesus Christ that is opening the seals and probably executing the judgment. But the angel is there as part of the instrumentality of the judgment and he's calling John to come. So he's participating with Jesus Christ involved in the judgment, maybe not directly as an instrument. Does that make sense? One of the four living creatures. Uh, you see this in each of the first four seal judgments. Uh, we have another living creature at each of the four. So we have uh, angels involved there. Uh, turn to chapter 15 where it seems that they're just involved in the judgment but not direct instruments. But verses 4 and 5. Or five, let's see, five and six. After these things, I looked, and the temple, the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden altars. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Uh, an involvement there. Implied, I guess. There's other passages as well. If you want a passage outside of Revelation, you can jot down Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, where angels are present at judgment. And there's other passages as well. Angels that are directly used as instruments of judgment. 7 verse 1. 
That was the first occasion. After this, this is the introduction to the 144,000. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the winds of judgment so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Remember, they're holding back until the 144,000 are sealed. The implication is, is after they are sealed, then they are the instruments that God uses to bring these winds of judgment. Does that make sense? Look at chapter 8, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. They are actually the instruments that bring about the trumpet judgments. They execute trumpets. Verse 2 is the beginning. And then if you look at 6 through 13, you see uh, verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail, fire mixed with blood. Uh, they seem to be more directly involved there. Certainly they announce judgment. So, in, in a sense, that's uh, instrumentality, in, instrumentality. And there's other verses as well. Verse 14, 17, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So he is going to inflict judgment in the imagery in that passage. So they're instruments of judgment. Another category, the last one where we have passages, is they exercise other authority besides judgment authority. 18.1 is an example. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. An overt statement of authority. They're, they exercise authority. Chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key. Remember the keys in the book of Revelation and Old Testament? Those are symbols of authority. He having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon. So he has authority and along with the authority, the power to imprison Satan. So there's a couple of verses that speak of authority. So these are some of the main functions in the book of Revelation that give us a picture of what angels do and what their ministry is all about. One of them is they are worshipers, they are revealers of God's word. And by the way, we have that reference I mentioned in terms of them uh, at least present at the giving of the law. And they may have had some instrumentality instrumentality in the revealing of the law. And there's other verses as well outside of the book of Revelation. Uh, they are witnesses of God's work. We see passages inside and outside of the book of Revelation. They're involved in judgment, primarily the book of Revelation, but you also see them in passages like Matthew 13. So you have a little bit of an angelology in the book of Revelation. Lots of angels. Direct instruments of judgment. 
uh, and just simply exercising authority. There's other verses, too, in terms of authority uh, that might be related to authority. They seem to have some powers over nature that God has given them authority over functions of nature. There's an angel of uh, over fire in 14.18. Let's look, look at that one. Another angel, the one who has power or authority over fire. Came out from the altar and he does certain things there. So they have powers or authority. There's an angel of the waters in chapter 16, verse 5. There's an angel in verse 18 that illumines the earth, so he has some powers over light. In fact, we probably uh, don't have a, a real good picture in terms of things in the natural realm that angels actually accomplish. There's other passages elsewhere out of the book of Re- outside the book of Revelation that indicate that some forces of nature may be controlled by angels. Climatology may involve angelic beings. We don't see the unseen spiritual world and what God is doing in that world. Uh, the book of Revelation kind of gives us a picture of some of the ministry of angels. So there's a little side light concerning ministry of the angels. Now, in chapter 14, see, do you have the outline on that? I don't think I gave you the outline, did I? Hmm? Chapter 14? Okay. 13 and 14. Okay, you should have that. Uh, We have the protection, verses 1 through 5, of the 144,000. And now, in verse 14, we're going to have pronouncements of these of some angels. 6 through 13. That's why I've selected angels, because now they're involved in revelation. Beginning in verse 6. And I saw another angel... Flying in mid-heaven. We saw that phrase before, mid-heaven. This is at the point where the sun is at its, what is it called, apex. I think that's the proper word. Uh, The point at where the sun is at noon, that's mid-heaven in the Bible. So there's a sun that is at the highest point. In other words, the point at which everyone... Can see, in other words, not obscured by anything in mid heaven. And what is he doing? This is during the tribulation. Having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Well, that's a bright spot. There's always grace. No matter what period of time in the Bible, there is always grace, even in this period of the most judgment, uh, the most wrathful, the most bleak, the darkest period, there is always grace. And we've already seen God's grace. 
Not only do the people of that seven-year period have a witness by 144,000, not only do they have prophetic word from prophets that deliver maybe even new revelation of God or probably bringing in passages from the Old Testament to convict Israel of her sin. So not only do we have the 144,000, not only do we have the witnesses of uh, the two. Not only it's not mentioned, well, it is mentioned. It, it mentions the testimony of just everyday Christians. Not only do people during the tribulation have the witness of individual believers, but here and nowhere else in Scripture, we have the gospel presentation. It's called an eternal gospel by an angelic creature that is at the most prominent place where no one is going to miss it. So the gospel is going to be delivered to everyone during the Great Tribulation. I take this as an implication of this passage. Uh, at no other point in Scripture do we have angels delivering the gospel message. We see angels observing... Uh, do you remember the parables of the, the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son? Luke, what is that? Luke 15. What happens when uh, uh, the lost sheep is found? And the lost sheep is a picture of Christ reaching somebody that is lost. What happens in heaven? The angels are rejoicing. So they're observers of salvation and redemption. Uh, the Second parable, when uh, the late, the woman who lost the coin, she finds the coin. Uh, so also, Jesus says, shall it be when one person is saved, they'll be rejoicing in heaven. And angels are in view. So there are observers of redemption. But here is the only passage in, in the Bible that speaks of angels actually proclaiming a gospel, a gospel message. So, no one in any period of time has an excuse, Romans 1, and even during this most dreadful time when it would be very difficult to receive Jesus Christ. It will cost you your life in most cases. We have an announcement of the gospel. This is not a different gospel. This is not another gospel. It's identified as a, an eternal gospel. In Scripture, we have the gospel referred to in different phrases like this one. And it's just emphasizing uh, different aspects of it. We, it's called the gospel of grace in some context. Explain, or expounding on the aspect of the graciousness of it. Uh, the eternal gospel uh, is a reference to... It's the same gospel that Adam and Eve received in the, in the garden. It's the same gospel that was presented. The content may vary, but in terms of the essence of it, it hasn't changed how salvation is brought about. It's by grace, uh, through faith. It's not by works. Uh, the content in terms of where that faith is placed may vary from generation to generation and dispensation to dispensation, but it's the same gospel. It's an eternal gospel. That's the stress here. The uniqueness also is this gospel is uh, presented by angelic beings, or an angel, rather. So he has this eternal gospel. 
to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation. It's universal. Now, how it is accomplished in a actual way, uh, the text doesn't tell us, but it says that uh, those who live on the earth and every nation, every tribe and uh, tongue and people. So there will be, uh, it's almost implied uh, after all other means have been exhausted, God still pours out grace in presenting a gospel during the tribulation period. That's the positive. So the gospel will preach. Secondly, verse 8. Oh, verse 7 first. And he said with a loud voice, here's the content. Fear God, give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. We're getting to the end of the tribulation. The consummation of all time. And it also says, it, and, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The gospel includes a message concerning God as creator in this context. Going all the way back to Genesis 1. God is the creator of all things. Worship him. It's the God that Paul speaks of in Romans 1 that everyone knows. God has revealed himself to all men. Uh, reveals himself through the creation because he is the creator. So that's the preaching of the gospel. Verse 8, we have another of the same kind, alos, another angel, a second one. Lots of angels here. Here's another angel that brings revelation. He followed saying, this is a negative report or a negative pronouncement. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. This is the ultimate victory of God over Babylon. So we're now we're introduced to this concept of Babylon. When we get to chapter 17 and 18, I'm going to give you a little introduction to this concept of Babylon. This is Jewish eschatology. Think about if you were a Jew, what would you think about when you thought of Babylon? That will help you to interpret what Babylon is all about. So we have just the overt statement that Babylon is in fact going to be finished. It's going to be done with. It's going to be destroyed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We have an insight as to who Babylon is. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine, of the passion of her immorality. This is uh, imagery. Uh, some of this imagery is drawn from the Old Testament. In fact, most of it is. Uh, it's a picture of immorality, wine to the point that uh, people get themselves out of control, that stimulates their sensuality, their passions, in such a way that culminates in immorality of all sorts, not just sexual but there are other sensual sins that we could include in that as well. Uh, so we have the reason for the fallenness of Babylon. God is going to deal with the evil of Babylon and the influence that Babylon has exerted, not only during the tribulation, but over all of the centuries of the past. Verse 8. Another, well, we read that one. Verse 9. Another angel... 
So we have a third, a third one, follow it, followed them, saying with a loud voice, no whispers in the tribulation. And only one occasion of silence in chapter 8. Everything's loud and overt and spectacular. So what does he say in a loud voice? If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead and upon his head, he also will drink of the wine, going back to the same imagery, the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, wrath, uh, orge is the Greek word there, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice the angels there. We called attention to their, their being part of the witnesses as part of the judgment as well. Uh, again, the same imagery in the Old Testament of drinking of the wine associated with wrath, the wine of the wrath of God. Now, in biblical times, most wine was diluted. Uh, it was a common beverage that everyone drank, but it was diluted such that people would not become intoxicated in it. Here, it is unmixed. So, it's a strong drink. Uh, the image is that you partake and it... Uh, uh, makes influence on you that uh, to do things that you probably would not do without that influence. Uh, so, drink of the wine, but the imagery is that of wrath. And instead of the wine being unmixed, which is, it's the wrath that is unmixed. In other words, undiluted wrath, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his wrath or anger. And he will, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. So it looks at, uh, it's an image of hell, basically. So this pronouncement, this third one. Oh, by the way, I forgot. I've got some slides here on Babylon. Uh, Saddam Hussein put a lot of money and effort into rebuilding Babylon, interestingly. And this is the entrance to his reconstruction of Babylon uh, in Iraq. Uh, if you can visit Iraq, you can visit uh, uh, this monument to himself. He, he viewed himself as another Nebuchadnezzar, and his goal was to destroy the nation of Israel. Now, obviously, he's been killed. But another person like that is going to take control of Babylon. We're going to see this in chapter 17. So this place is going to play a prominent role. This is a reconstruction of ancient Babylon. Uh, these are not my photographs. Uh, these are photographs from a friend that served in the, the war there that was able to take photos. No, I think they're... Some of them are lions. I'm not sure what those are. Uh, different. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the Istar Gate, which is associated with the goddess Istar. 
but I'm not sure of the symbolism there. I, th I thought there were some symbols more directly related to Ishtar, but I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, these are some of the reconstructed areas that this friend of mine was able to take photographs of. Inside are relics and artifacts dating back to ancient times. Um, Saddam Hussein viewed himself as a second Nebuchadnezzar, and those were his hopes. So we have a pronouncement of the gospel, pronouncement of the fall of uh, Babylon, and we have judgment that is introduced or proclaimed, verses 9 through 11. That's what we're reading. Uh, continuing in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image, uh, the emphasis, it's over and over, who receive, and who, whoever receives the mark of his name. So chapter 14 is just kind of uh, in the midst of the judgment. We have these announcements. God is going to bring all of these things to a conclusion. It's almost as if he's writing to the martyrs. Just, just be patient. I'm working all these things out. There's going to be ultimate victory over evil. There's the positive presentation of the gospel. The fall of Babylon is going to be completed. We'll have the details of that in chapter 17 and 18. There's going to be final judgment that's going to deal with the beast that is persecuting the believers. So all of this is almost positive to... Uh, uh, give hope and encouragement to believers. Verse 12, here, and, and uh, here's the basis for that. Here is the persevering of the saints. In other words, this is encouragement to persevere. The perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, stay obedient. Continue your walk. Continue your testimony. Don't lose faith. Don't... Don't become impatient. God is going to bring this all to a, an end. And these are the pronouncements that the angels make. And then verse 14, this also introduces us to some other events that will be given more detail, but they're more in the forms of, I'm going to complete this thing. I'm going to complete judgment. So in verse 14, we have a picture of what this judgment is going to look like using two images. In verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now this one, who do you think this image is? The word angelos is not there. This probably goes back to the vision of chapter 1. This is Christ, more than likely. Having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Jesus is the ultimate instrument of judgment. Remember, he's a major player during the tribulation. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud... Now, he comes out of the temple delivering probably a message from the Father. He's just the instrument that carries the message. 
And Jesus, who's in view in verse 14, put in your sickle and reap. In other words, this is it. This is the end. Because the hour to reap has, has come because the harvest of the earth is dry or ripe. Literally, it's dry. The, the word there could be translated dry. The cause of the judgment, we'll get to that. He who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Uh, the cause of judgment, false worship. Uh, the character of the judgment is its punishment. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but the chronology, it's eternal. We can pull all of these out from this passage. I've used this to summarize. The culprit are the false worshipers. We saw that in the earlier passage. Uh, there's a cleansing or a purifying of the believers, and angels are involved. I'm using C as my alliterated element there. Perseverance of the saints, we saw that. Okay, here's the harvest. Here's the passage we're looking at. Uh, first, the image of 14 through 16 is that of a grain harvest with a sickle. Uh, the word ripe and dry is related to probably grain, the imagery of grain. Uh, verse 17 begins another image, which is a grape harvest, 17 through 20. And behind the imagery, ultimately, we'll see one of the bold judgments is Armageddon. And there's other uh, allusions to that later on. Uh, verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sickle. So here's another angel that's going to participate in direct judgment. And another one, the one who has power over fire. There's an angel with authority over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. See the distinction there? Because our grapes are ripe. A different word than the ripe in verse 16. Or 15, rather. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The imagery is a, 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 uh, a winepress. They would throw the grapes into the winepress and stomp all the juices out. And it would make a mess because it would splatter all over. This is imagery of what's going to happen in the final judgment. More details going to be added later. The image is that of blood. Notice what it says in verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. And notice, not grapes or not grape juice, but what? Blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is Armageddon. Uh, we're going to have more detail. To give you a perspective from uh, the, there's a phrase, well, uh, the northern boundary is Dan in the land of Israel, and here's Jerusalem, there's 104 miles, so we're going to have destruction over a, uh, a distance of 100 and, what is it, 200 miles is what it says. So, this final battle, we're going to look at this in more detail, we'll come back to this, this is just pronouncement here. 
God's going to deal with evil. He's going to bring an end to it. Fall of Babylon, we'll also see more detail on it. It occurs at the very end of the seven years as, as uh, Antichrist's kingdom comes to an end. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. That's the heavenly explanation. Two parts, the major characters and ultimate victory. And in the next session, we'll look at the final plagues. So we're getting in, getting into the last of the great tribulation. Okay. How do you view these two readings? There's a variety of interpretations. Some of them see the wheat harvest as believers, and the other harvest uh, unbelievers. Uh, it's, it's hard to put believers in the wheat harvest, so I have a problem with it. Uh, it might just be two different images of the same judgment. So there's a variety of viewpoints. But we've run out of time, so let's go ahead and take our break.